Welcome to this week's episode of It's All Funny Games, the official Games podcast. I'm your host and head writer at GameZo, Dan. This week, I am joined by Ross and two very special guests, Bennett and Nick from Bomb Shelter Games. What's up, guys? How's it going? It's going. It's going. So it's great to be here. I hope it's good to be here. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, by the end of this, you could be, you know, disconnecting from from the call. We we ask the hard questions, but the uh, the normal listenership readership know Ross and I. Why don't you guys take a minute to, you know, tell everybody who you are, um, who Bomb Shelter Games is, what your new game is, and uh, you know why you're here. I'm assuming yeah. Bennett, you can go first. All right, sounds good. I'm uh so my name is Bennett. I am one of the original co-founders of Bomb Shelter Games. We we are a tiny little indie studio from the Boston area in Massachusetts. Uh, originally, um, we started the game studio ten years ago. Just a couple of friends making video games because we thought it might be cool, and it's kind of spiraled out of control since then. And now we uh we we're pretty serious about it. I I'm doing it pretty much full-time these days though uh payment's a little bit different than uh than full-time <laughs> but that's part of the uh the indie journey um but yeah we're gamers making games um and the latest project that we're working on is a, an underwater metroidvania that we are super excited to make mostly just because we're making it because we haven't seen it before is the is the quickest way to put it um which is sort of the approach that we've taken to all the games we've made oh and um i also do the the artwork for the game i, I think i left that out <laughs> very important he's, he's just our full-time beatboxer doing the entire soundtrack um <laughs> uh i'm nick uh so i joined uh the depths of sanity team about a year ago um to actually work on the story um and a lot of those elements i'm the I'm kind of the guy screwing up the made in Boston aspect of this because I'm technically in New York, <laughs> but we keep that a secret um, until it's like a Red Sox Yankees thing. Um, but yeah, uh, so this is kind of my first time. I come out of weirdly doing like a lot of indie theater and plays and things like that. So this is kind of my first time uh, writing uh, the script and all of the story materials for a game. It's been a really cool experience so far. Yeah, and that's it's funny because normally we're talking to people from like all over the place, and um, like I mentioned, GameZo is a UK website, but Ross and I are both Boston locals, so yeah. this is yeah. this is kind of it's it's really funny. We have kind of concentrated all in a very small section of the world, both sides of the podcast today, which is fun. Um, cool. So I that was actually my first question I wanted to ask about this, and it's one of the things I always am curious about with indie games, which is you know how basically how big is the studio and then like what percentage of people are working on this basically full-time versus as a, a second, you know, job or a passion project. Yeah. So, um, the studio, we, it's, it's hard to Amorphous. say exactly because <laughs> yeah, like honestly it gets into that question. Exactly. We do have, we have anywhere from four to seven or eight, depending on how involved, like we, we have some people, old friends of ours who will help, help us out with things like music um, and sound, but they're not really involved in the core of the project from the start as much. Um, eight is definitely the max amount of people who like get their hands dirty with the game. I would say the uh, it's four or five, like strictly involved um, right now. Like I said, I'm, I'm trying to do this full time as much as I can. Um, and that is the only thing we have that is remotely close to a full-time employee. Everybody else has, um, full day, day jobs. I, I used to up until 
actually, I think that's coming up on a, a year or so. <laughs> um, and right now I'm actually working on um, going and getting another actual full-time gig. So I will be going back to working on this part-time again and uh, we'll all be part-time. So this was very much a uh, a hobby for a lot of us when we started out. Um, it was just something, like I said, gamers making games. We started doing it in our free time uh, right around when we were in college, just figuring it might be a good way to help us score a job in the game industry one day, having a game under your belt, that sort of initiative to like, hey, we started our own studio, um, making mobile games and uh, eventually Steam games and now full console experience, which is super exciting. But yeah, it's um, it's a passion project part-time situation for nearly all of us. We, we just got lucky for a bit where... It- Hated his job, and we had an immense amount of animation that still needed to go done. He was like, "All right, I'm going to do this full time for as long as I can make this rock." So awesome, super helpful on that front. <laughs> yeah, that's always like the the most interesting thing to me is how many people kind of you know their their day job doesn't maybe not necessarily line up with what they're working on on the, on an indie game, right? So I guess in that or how much of their you know they use this as a second gig or a passion project um but i guess with that first part you know does your job do you guys each individually right does your normal day job what you do for a career line up with what you're working on on the game or is it just like hey i I love writing or i love art and that's just again it's just a passion component to what you're doing um so for me so my I feel like I have way too many jobs. So my day job is marketing. So I'm also helping a lot with the marketing on the game. But I was a freelance writer for a long time. So it overlaps in that. The only uh, catch being as a freelance writer, you get to do a lot less uh, fun projects and a lot more like this email chain that goes out promoting this product. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the closest I get is, um, so I mean, my I went to school for, television production and i've been leveraging that in sort of marketing uh, like marketing content creation those sorts of things my uh job before this was um at the end of the day really just glorified webinar host with some smatterings in a video content creation for a uh for a marketing firm real real riveting riveting stuff um i, I that's did, how you put it on your resume just glorified <laughs> webinar host i really think that'll kill it <laughs> yeah. i uh i did do like i dabble in like motion graphics in in the professional space but outside of that um there is virtually no crossover i think the closest we get is um the the lead designer um on on the actual like back end making all the uh a lot of gameplay decisions and and doing a lot of the the back end design was a uh, professor of game design um, for for a while. So that is that's some like that makes sense. It's like you you teach game design during the day and then you go back and you work on your own game afterwards. Um, outside of that, no, we're just yeah. You got to get jobs and things that that pay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and honestly, it might even just be beneficial to just having something different because I can't imagine just sitting down like doing like software coding for eight hours a day and then getting back home and it's like okay time to you know code for my game <laughs> just, for another four hours before i go to bed I just know, take I, a yeah. break for I dinner and then you're away. back in the same stream yeah yeah that's, Dan, do you have that anything makes sense else that you wanted to throw out there real quick 
No, I mean, th- those are my first two. That's my like get to know them yeah. type stuff, you know, but feel free. It's, it's all you, man. Throw your questions yeah. in. Well, I, I have like a question for Bennett because when you think of Metroidvania games, obviously you think like Castlevania and stuff like that. And then when it comes to something like Castlevania, the level design is sort of just like you're in this castle and there's a bunch of different areas based on like, okay, well, here's the cathedral. Here's the, you know, the, the clock tower. Here's the underwater area or whatever. Your game is specifically just all underwater. So as an artist, how hard is it for you to sort of differentiate these different sections of the game instead of just being like, it's underwater, but it's purple now instead of blue. And it's like, what was what were some of the challenges in sort of creating assets to fit these different areas to make it sort of feel different? Well, you actually just hit the nail like straight on the head uh, because the first solution was was color coding. Honestly, <laughs> like I, I made uh, it started with these tiles, these rocks, um, and they were going to be in the first world. And I'm like, all right. So this, you're probably going to see these rocks everywhere. So um, I'll just make them darker because you're going deeper. So the deeper you go, the darker they are. Um, but eventually, like, I I spent a lot of time um, digging up, like, old uh, documentaries on, like, Netflix and stuff, uh, like, where they just, like, deep dives, like, Deep Blue, and I can't remember any of the other names, but just watching a bunch of um, footage of fish and the ocean just to try to get a sense of like, okay, if we are going to have like, if we are going to have all ocean, it can't be the same thing everywhere. And eventually you realize it is the same thing everywhere. It's sand (laughs) and it's dark and that's pretty much it. Um, so it took a little bit of, uh, creative thinking to like try to figure out Okay, for the like one of the biggest biomes, and this is one if you're familiar with the game and have played demos at all, you've seen plenty of like shipwrecks and like in the background and that kind of thing. That was definitely the first thing that came to mind is like, okay, what's what's at the bottom? Uh, you know, shipwrecks, uh, old, you know, uh, pirate type vessels, newer like metal battleships and that kind of thing. Um, so we'll just put those everywhere, but then you know, you start to realize it's like, well, maybe that maybe that makes up a biome. So now you can kind of divide the sections into different biomes and you've got coral reefs as well. So that became one. And it was kind of identifying rather than like trying to holistically absorb what's in the ocean and recreate it, it was trying to divide up different parts of the ocean in different ways to try to represent them in one way or another. And in doing so, discovered some really cool things. Um, for example, I discovered that like, there's this concept called a whale fall in uh, the ocean, which is like blue whales are just immense. They're, they're like unimaginably large. And when they die, their body sinks to the bottom of the ocean and it lands and it starts to decay. And it can sit there and decay for like a decade or more. And as it does that, it becomes this sort of ecosystem for all different kinds of sea life, which was like super cool to learn. And also gave me like, like it was finding things like that um, and trying to expand on those ideas and sort of, you know, create something that wasn't just, well, you know, here's a bigger ship or here's like (laughs) the, the coral reef, but it's dead now. Um, and, and things like that. So it was, uh, it was certainly a challenge though. Um, but 
I, I think we did a pretty good job of identifying enough difference because I think one of the most important things about Metroidvanias in general is you need to be able to figure out where you are versus where you went. So if we just gave you the same visuals, just slightly different colors, you'd be like, well, yeah, was I in the purple room when I, where did I need to bring this thing? Was it the red room the or the red purple ship? room? Is it the green ship? Oh, right. So, uh, so rather than just the recolor, um, we wanted to get a little bit more creative with it. Yeah, sure. definitely. Because a lot of those, a lot of these games are just like, okay, well, here's this area. I can't get to it until I get double jump. But you know, I know it's in the cathedral, and then like I can't get to this area until I get the slide, and I know that's in like the waterway. So you just have that in your mind the whole time. It's like, oh, I got this. I can go back to here now. So that's always cool that you you did a really good job differentiating. And the trailer itself had like a lot of different areas. Like there was like a volcano area. Obviously, the yep. demo just had like, oh, yeah. one set place with the the ships and everything. But even that, it was still it felt different enough. So that was, yeah, that's it's, been it's, a big focus. Go yeah, ahead. Nick. That's what I was curious about. It's, it's interesting too. Cause we, when it comes to showing off some of the biomes, there's two in the back half that we can't show because at least in terms of how the game progresses, things get less and less realistic and more weird and creepy in the back half. So we've been a lot of, for instance, one of the things that helps us is we don't have to play hard and fast with these are actual ocean biomes, particularly as it gets, um, to the end game where things get a little nuts. Hmm. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that, where kind of the writing overlaps with the art design, because you know the story itself that is behind this and this whole concept of going deeper and challenging sanity as you're going kind of deeper into the ocean um, is really unique um, and interesting. And I kind of I like this. I want to say horror esque element that's wrapped around it, but it's like psychological horror. It's not your traditional mm. like your vampires or your whatever um, type thing. So, I you kind of you already worked towards that, but how much um, how much of the game design wraps around kind of sinking deeper and deeper in that story? You know what I mean? Like how 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 and how much fun are you having yeah. kind of creating that? <laughs> so. Um... It's been interesting because so by the time I joined, so they had been working with basic idea of kind of a sort of a plot structure with kind of where it was going to go. And they came basically at a point where they're like, all right, we need somebody to actually build this into a story. Does this work? That sort of thing. Um, So it's been interesting to jump onto a project where some things were already built and in place. And okay, how is this going to fit into story as it goes along? like working with Bennett in particular on they're integrating what was there or changing it to fit kind of where we're going. Cause like we lean into it probably more than we um, talk about now. Cause like you know, the summary of the game is, you know, uh, you're a guy who's basically going to find his old crew who went missing while trying to investigate a signal under the ocean. It's not actually where it starts. The opening is he gets pulled out of the ocean after four weeks of disappearing and is a wreck and he's talking through his experiences and basically each biome is like chapter and like what happened to him. Um, so a lot of, particularly in the back half, um, each level decays. Like it's interesting to talk about like what we can and can't say things decay as you go (laughs) along and eventually you are not sure how much is him, how much is thing that is actually happening around you in the original idea I don't know if this was a full idea. You, maybe you can talk about this with Bennett. Um, in one of their original game docs, they had like Thulu question mark, question mark as like the finale. And we, we scrapped that just because like, you know, there's 
like Cthulhu is showing up in everything these days. And like, I, I enjoy Lovecraft, but I don't need another Cthulhu game. But we were like, all right, let's keep that idea of something. Let's develop our own monster and creatures in the, in the back of this that like kind of go with our own lore to kind of differentiate it a bit. Um, it's been interesting. Like there's a, in terms of how we've worked together, there's for instance, a segment where, uh, you find a whale that's captured as there is originally a gameplay segment. You were going to shoot at its net and then it lays into this whole gameplay sequence where you're kind of using it to break through different areas. Um, and I was like, well, at that point, a lot of weird things have gone on. So what if it's being held in place by something that is not a net, but it is the enemy I can't talk about yet, but the player doesn't realize what it is. And like things like going over areas to be like, how can we integrate the story more into what the visuals are currently? been a really interesting part of it yeah and i guess to get in my mind to get an understanding where which portion of the game right um whereabouts does the demo take place can you guys kind of can you say that can you can you let us know yeah the the demo is sort of a mashup of different chunks of uh the second biome out of six um but uh it's a mashup also in that like it's yeah, it's a super condensed version of some of the things that happen in that level. Okay, yeah, I was just thinking the like the boss fight in there, like yeah, it's already starting. <laughs> to do, I don't want to, I want people to go play the demo, go download it and play the demo, um, because yes. it's it's super fun. But I'm trying to use that to gauge in my head like how much does it decay because that kind of boss fight's cool and it's already starting to go into that that direction, yeah. which is cool. Yeah. So by the end of World Two, that is sort of you're kind of starting to become, I think, a little suspicious of like, okay, this isn't super friendly, super normal anymore. Um, It's funny because uh, the uh, originally we had a we've had a couple of these demos out um, in the past. There's a kind of way to to play test and develop the game um, with user feedback while we were making it. Um, and we actually had early on, uh, the second demo we ever released, the boss of that one was the boss that uh, will be the boss of world four. Um, so if you have played that one, you've kind of seen way behind the curtain in terms of like how monstrous things get. It gets, uh, a little bit. Yeah. It gets a little bit wacky. Plus there's stuff from the trailers too. And I can kind of tell it's getting pretty crazy. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so obviously I don't know what's a boss and what's an enemy because everything's like this giant hulking aquatic <laughs> beast. So I'm like, might be a boss. I don't know. <laughs> Our angler fish is like forty times your size. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I wanted to talk about the HUD and like the creation of the HUD and how it like the genesis of how it came to be because I think it's super interesting and it super fits like the aesthetic of the game of you being in a submarine and instead of just having like a health bar or like your weapons, you have the actual console of like what a submarine would look like so can you kind of talk about like the initial drafts of what that looked like and how it changed maybe the, uh, awesome absolutely uh thrilled to honestly <laughs> you, you asked him like, literally the thing that he is the happiest <laughs> that is, like, absolutely yeah no um so like uh the hud that's in there now i think it's like it's like version five or something like that we uh we originally started this out uh when we started I think the first like version of our steam page was like the year is 1995 for some reason. Um, and it was partially because I have this, uh, a, a little bit of a, um, spot in my heart for retro futurism. Um, I love the like 
cowboy bebop cartridge technology kind of thing. So we wanted to make this sort of like weird 90s inspired. Um, it, it was originally going to be four three. Um, really like paying homage to like old Metroidvania cartridge style games. Um, and the all of the displays. Um, and all of the HUD were um, basically kind of trying to look like old school green text on black background computer um, screens. And it all played into this idea that like it, there was some weird plot element that went with it um, that's been like sort of discarded and sort of not. I, it's not worth going <laughs> into. But um, originally it was just this like sort of straightforward and basically just a Metroid HUD that was colored green. Um, and it wasn't that, that interesting. And that's kind of when I got it into my head, what, okay, we're going to change it. We're going to expand it. We're going to the whole widescreen, which means we need a wider, uh, like a longer HUD. And from there, just trying to think of a way to make it more interesting than just throwing information up on the screen. And, um, that's really where it came out of. I, what I wanted to do was have the, the pickups that you get actually slot in, um, so you'll see that if you do fire up the demo at some point, um, there are a bunch of video screens that are off and there are pieces missing from your HUD. And as you get them and unlock them, um, it will populate all of those things. Um, and honestly, it was it was sort of a pet project, which is why I love uh, you asking about it, because I will fully admit that I even went a little bit overboard with some of the things. So we have a little switch up at the top um, for a sonar. And when the sonar's on, the little sonar screen on the HUD will uh, pulse with a little sonar beep. And if you're near an enemy, it will actually put a dot in the direction that the enemy is from you on that little sonar screen, which is totally unnecessary, but was something that like we just really wanted to do because it kind of felt cool putting the map in um a bigger sort of like sonar looking machine um but that was uh, we also like i said going a little overboard originally had um a uh, a secondary hut on the bottom of your screen for your weapons um that would tell you which of your um like just primary weapon you had equipped and uh, whether or not it was currently being fired and all kinds of other stuff but at that point, we realized there's this kind of like sweet spot behind between like a a cool dynamic HUD that looks like it's a sub console, which is definitely what we were going for versus something that's just kind of like getting in the way of the player being able to see what's on the screen and distracting them from what's going on. Um, so that was sort of a, a delicate balance to try to try to hit um, between there. And ultimately we did scrap the bottom HUD and I think it, uh, works a lot. You're, you're, you've got more room on the screen to see. Um, and you can check your weapon is now condensed into a wheel that appears, um, and is similarly structured to the, uh, to the original HUD, but honestly, it still has the same sort of, um, same sort of approach to the classic super Metroid HUD. It's got your, life bars the same way in the in the upper left hand corner it's got your your torpedoes and your depth charges and stuff listed out in sort of the same spots um so it was kind of a matter of i, I like i looked at a bunch of pictures of ocean life and uh ocean floors to try to get a sense of the uh the environment that we were making 
I uh, I pulled up a lot of different. They have a lot of cool, like the Alvin um, is a fairly, I say, famous submersible. I mean, if you Google submersible and you see a picture of one, it is probably the Alvin or the Alvin two. Um, so checking out cockpits like that and, you know, the, the switches and dials and buttons on them um, gave a lot of inspiration to try to condense all of that into a readable format that still had that Metroid feel. Yeah, my favorite part of the HUD is um, when you get the headlight and when you turn it on and off, you can hear like the audible click and like the switches moving and stuff like that. So I, I could tell you, you probably put a lot of love into it. And mm-hmm. That's why I wanted to ask. Thank you. Uh, super interesting. Dan, do you have anything you wanted to throw up I, there? Look, man, I, I, whatever. I I have so many questions, so I I'm just I'm, I'm letting you go because I know like you have a list, and I'm like way more abstract about it. And I've also talked to these guys a little bit before, um, so I, I don't want to I don't want to steal no, any of your thunder. You, but. you can go. I I went off on a tangent. Okay, a you went off on a great. So I I'm gonna pu- I'm gonna pull this back just for a moment, right? Because you guys are part of the um, the summer indie game festival on Steam. Right, which was initially supposed to be this coming week, but it got it got pushed back. Um, how's that experience been? Has that has like I know you guys have been crunching for it and and getting ready for it. What 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 goes into being part of something like that, and how's that experience been? It's a uh, it's been interesting because it, it's interesting because it's kind of a trial run of what the rest of the year is going to be like. Because it seems like every major event is now going to be digital only or stripped back in some form. Which like I've only been. Uh, I was only at the last PAX with the team, but uh, they've done the rounds at as many events in the Northeast as there are they've been at. So it's us trying to figure out like, okay, what do we need to do to make this work in in a digital format? Steam Game Festival um, has been pretty helpful on that front. Um, And now it's starting June 16th um, and it goes for six days where you can, you know, we're, we're there alongside a couple hundred other indies uh each with our demos and different events um probably the easiest thing on their front that they've helped with is they they get a calendar where you can schedule live streams um and like q a's with developers to kind of like facilitate that sort of thing um but on our end particularly probably it was a it was the biggest rush on bennett's of we need to update all of our Steam stuff. We need to get a bunch of new assets together. We need to get marketing ready for it. But I don't know if there's anything in particular that um, uh, you want to talk about, Bennett, in terms of things that had to get pulled together that normally, at this point, having done a bunch of events are kind of in the bag to a degree. Yeah, it's very interesting because it's it's similar but different at the same time in as much as while there's all... Uh, we we got into kind of a groove, honestly, when it came to events. We've been taking this game to events for a while, and the the like the point that the game is at has changed. We usually try to have a new demo. We've been changing the the visuals. We get new visuals for the game, which inform new visuals for like banners and like uh, printouts and things like that. Um, so it's not too different in the sense of instead of going to get a banner printed to make sure that you've got. The latest and greatest up there you got to add the consoles you're on and things like that um now it's updating digital platforms and things like that so it's it's got that same sort of flavor um it's i think the biggest thing is is the sort of just the mental headspace of pro, like there's it'll be i think most interesting doing the actual festival itself um we've like Nick said, taking the game to PAX three times. Um, 
We've been to South by Southwest. We've done um, both the Boston and uh, Connecticut Indie Game Festival. We even took it um, to Indie Pop in the UK, um, I think last year as well, um, and DreamHack Dallas. So we've taken it to a bunch of places. And um, every time you get the opportunity to see everybody who plays the game, you get to watch them play the game. You get to talk to them while they play the game or after they play the game. Um, It's a great like sort of community experience. So I'm going to be very interested to see how this all plays out, knowing that people are going to be playing the game, the demo rather independently without us there to maybe ask us a question or to react. Um, you know, hopefully like they share stuff on social media. That'd be great to to see how people feel about it. Um, and, and hopefully they join us for the Q and a, if they have any questions, but it, it'll kind of, I'm super glad that stuff like this is still happening. The alternative being that we just <laughs> yeah. stop doing any of this would would definitely be devastating. But it is it is certainly a bit of a bummer to not have that sort of like in person interaction there because um, it's just great to talk to people who are passionate about games about the game you're passionate about. Um, but the lead up to it has been um, very. The, the process and the, and the sort of crunch involved has just been a sort of different flavor of preparing for any festival that we might be doing. And I guess um, I'll ask one more question since because it's on the same topic around kind of festivals or, or shows. Um, and then, Ross, you can go back to your list. But um, what we talked to um, a developer from another studio on a, a prior podcast, and it was really interesting getting the take on the value of going to something like a PAX or something or any of those other events, I guess from your perspective, you know, what is the most valuable part of that experience um, for an indie developer? Is it the marketing opportunity? Is it the feedback? Is it a combination of all of that? Is it something that maybe we're not thinking about? It's, I think it really depends on the sort of size of the festival, something like PAX, the marketing opportunity is in an invaluable. We like can go to our, the back end of our steam page and look at the, uh, the wish list jumps that we get from events like that. Um, which is probably the best way for indies to measure the potential success of their game on steam. It's certainly how steam measures a game's potential success on steam. Um, sidebar, it would really help us out if you're remotely interested <laughs> in the game to wish list us on Steam. We uh, it, it does it definitely helps us out a ton. Um, but that's that's really like once you get well past um, a certain point in a project where that becomes your goal. Like I said, we've been doing uh, we did um, Boston Festival of Indie Games, Connecticut Festival of Indie Games. We've taken it to, um, there are a bunch of other smaller organizations in and around Boston that do, uh, do events with small groups of people, Indie, uh, Boston Indies Night, uh, Playcraft Boston, uh, among others. And those ones, while uh, the marketing opportunity is still very much there, um, people who are passionate about indie games certainly turn out to these things and they're looking for the next um, awesome new indie game to play, but it's also a great opportunity to get early on uh, feedback super early, um, and immediately and candidly before you've kind of like set everything in stone and you know exactly where you're headed so that you can make adjustments, you can improve the game. Um, 
the last game that we made that we released on Steam, um, we went through the whole green light process back when that was the uh, process to release your game on Steam. And uh, we developed it behind closed doors for like two years before we brought it to um, a, a festival or just like it, it was a small one at that. And uh, the game was basically ready to come out and somebody that they, they had played it and like, cool. So when's it when's it coming out like uh, next year or something like that? We're like, oh, no, it's like it's like ready, ready to go. Why is it, is it not? <laughs> is it not good? Um, and like it, w- what we realized, and I will, I will take most of the burden, um, here for it is, uh, we got so used to it's sort of the, uh, the issues in the game, the sort of like, it, it was very, very sort of hyper made for us. And, um, you realize that when you have other people play it, you're like, oh, oh, you don't, you don't get it. Well, and not to be Seymour Skinner, maybe the kids are the one that are wrong. <laughs> you know, you don't know, like that's not it's not the case as uh as we find out um so this one it was very important for us and it was immensely helpful for us to to bring it to festivals early and often um the we had like a pre-alpha build that was um back when the ship was just a single static image that spun around and was upside down the entire time you were going left on the screen because that was less important to us and making sure that the visuals popped and everything was like cool and looked ready yeah. to go was less important to us than making sure that the game was functionally like operational and oh. more importantly fun to play um so a lot of work has gone into figuring out how to using play tests to uh get these ships controls feeling right in a way that um kind of gives us a unique feel without it feeling overly constrictive and our end besides the festivals so like each of us has kind of a different level that they've played the game. I've played it probably the least. It was interesting because we recently had a, a couple weeks ago where essentially the fur we have a giant section of the game now completely. It's all stuck together. Everything is in there. Everybody needs to pass through this and see what you find. And we each had a collective piece of feedback that like there's a, there's a movement. Um, there's a, a movement move you originally unlocked like midway through the game and every single one of us separately came back and were like, this needs to be implemented from the very moment the game starts because other like it, it was like losing a limb trying to use it. And we even had people outside of us say, like, yeah, without this, like this is unbelievably hard. So it's been interesting to see also on that front. Like it's definitely even in the short shorter time that I've been on the team, I can see it improving the end product significantly. Yeah. I you actually hit something I want to talk about real quick. And the control scheme is kind of like like a big thing that hit me at first because I'm watching the trailers. I'm thinking, okay, twin stick shooter, easy enough. <laughs> and then I, I, I play the demo and I'm just like, what's going on? What am I doing? Am I like missing something? And I'm like moving the right stick and I'm trying to get it to work. I'm like, oh, I just don't use this at all. Like, that's weird. And at first it was kind of like, it felt super uncomfortable. And when I play in Metroidvania, I, I love Castlevania games. So I'm used to like this very precise movement, like the back dashes, like all that stuff. And here I am playing this clunky like submarine that I can't get to like rotate correctly if I want to. And I'm hitting the walls and I'm like, oh, God, am I losing health by hitting the all? So <laughs> what was sort of your thought process from going, OK, well, we don't want to just be another twin stick shooter. I just want to have like the sub control. You're going forward and you're controlling it. And honestly, I think it 
I think it also has like that Resident Evil effect where you're you're super scared because you can't control your character the way you want. You got to do the tank control thing and then go forward. And it's like I don't have precise control over what I'm doing, and I'm being attacked by this giant snake with like a skull head. I just like <laughs> it, it was rough. It um <laughs> it certainly. I, I think will add to a little bit of the uh, the horror and thriller element of the game having um, those the less less than pitch perfect like precision controls. Um, that was something we did have an iteration where uh, it was going to be twin stick. In fact, um, the original idea for the game was to have it be a sort of like top down shooter um, and that would involve uh, that sort of twin stick approach. The problem is um, it, it got to a point where we realized that like, all right, we've, we've basically got a bullet hell on our hands. We're going to like, especially in the late game, we're going to have to throw so much at you to make it challenging because it's just too, too precise. Um, and that wasn't really the direction we were, wanted to take the game in. Uh, it, it wasn't really, <laughs> the the level design that we were making and the plans that we had for uh, some of the um, bigger encounters and set pieces that we wanted to have later in the game didn't really fit with flooding the entire screen with a bunch of enemies. There aren't a lot of enemies that even shoot at you. And when there are, it becomes a really big problem. If you fought the, uh, the pistol shrimp in uh, the demo and you haven't figured out to use... Um, the weapon that is designed to just thread that one in particular, uh, it can be a really big challenge. And that sort of became the focus is if we gave you this sort of like twin stick shooter, eventually you just be like, well, okay. I mean, I have the gun that shoots that kind of spread shot and now I've got everything figured out. This can solve all of my problems. So we wanted to focus on creating more dynamic weapons that sort of really took the that concept of these mo more momentum-based controls and everything kind of works as a unit better because of that. Um, so we like to think of it as like very cohesive for for the way the game is is supposed to like kind of yeah. you're you're exploring. It's supposed to be tense. Blows you down a little bit. Right. And and like you're making decisions about, oh, OK, this is about to happen. I'm going to use this weapon or like, oh, I see this enemy. I know that I had some trouble with this weapon, but maybe this one will work um, and different things like that. Um, it also it, it helps with um, some of the gating as well. If you're going to go for it, you might find some enemy like you might get to a point where like you can physically go here. But every time you do, you get absolutely destroyed by all of these piranhas that come out of nowhere because. You just can't physically kill them all with the uh, with the weapon that you have. It it's all sort of part of the systems that we're putting in there. Um, and the the slower, the more tense, the that less than precise controls help help sort of drive home a lot of those concepts. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. More question actually. I just I want to add just one thing to that, and then you can you can ask your question. You um, so I I had it's funny because when Ross and I were talking about it, he was like, I'm you know I'm gonna play the demo, and uh, I was like, yeah, it's a little twin sticky. He's like, but there's no second stick, and I was like, don't worry about <laughs> it. Like that's I had the same reaction when I played when I played the demo the first time. But I actually I grew to like the floatiness, and I love the fact that you guys at the point I played the demo at PAX, the sub could still kind of do a 180 like super fast. 
And the yeah. first thing you guys talked to me about was like, we're fixing that. That's too precise. We're going to make it arc. It's going to make it way hard. And I was like, awesome. Because by the end of the demo, I actually didn't want to play the sub any other way because it felt like a submarine. And it didn't feel like that kind of twin stickiness that Ross mentioned. You kind of expect at first. But anyway, I just want to. That is like one of the, like, one of the things we love to see is watching. Because like the demo kind of throws you in a little bit over the deep end. Like, main game starts out slower and gets you more accustomed with how the movement is and like using back dashes and things like that but like watching somebody slowly move from like hitting everything not really asking it to um seeing some people in later areas like loading like a butterfly and like managing to like really like kill it on that front is really awesome to see like over time yeah it's a, it's a cool skill ceiling to try to get to i think so oh. anyway <laughs> That was my, my little my little props. Kind yeah, of. I got I, I gotta throw Nick some up because I've been just throwing underhand softballs. To him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, knocking them out. The only other thing I was kind of curious about was um, since you're doing all the writing, are you? I'm assuming you're also doing the writing for sort of like those side pieces that you walk over and collect, like the journals. And yeah. Stuff. So something I was curious about was if these are sort of optional pieces of information that you can pick up. How hard is it to sort of as you're writing, think, okay, well, maybe the player just won't ever see this. So how important <laughs> is this going to be to the story? And then I don't want to have someone play through the whole game and be like, okay, well, what was going on here? And then you're like, well, why didn't you just read the thing that you could have picked up? <laughs> um, uh, there's a bane of every writer's existence when you watch people play the demo and you have you get super excited when, when you see people who like stop and read everything and then you see everybody just coast by the moment they realize it's notes. Um, but uh, that was one of the immediate things that had to get solved when I when I first started working on it was after we kind of outlined the story, I broke up like, OK, you know, we have the opening cutscene, ending cutscene. And we basically have we trying to avoid ever stopping the player intentionally, except for when you switch biomes, we basically are like, all right, story scene. So, like, what are the main scenes that if you were to just see those, you get to the end of the game and you know what happened but there's a lot of holes or things that you didn't see so a lot of um for instance like with the notes good amount of the notes are just like explaining the characters so like one of the things was like all right who are the people of the baroness that you're actually trying to find who because they're all old friends of abe's like what are their roles what are they doing what's happening to them a lot of it's kind of uncovering uh what happened to each person some you'll see in the main story um, there's two that intentionally, unless you go down some side areas and explore, you'll never figure out what happened to them. Um, so a lot of it was like ensuring that if you get to the end of the game, you know what happened, but there's a lot of things that you'd still be like, oh, uh, I, I wonder if I had looked over here, would I would I figured out a bit more? It also plays into a bit with the game has multiple endings. Uh, you cannot get the best ending without... Uh, yeah, this isn't saying too much. If you don't know what, uh, if you don't discover kind of the fate of all the crew members, that plays a big role into the ending, um, which which helps a little bit. But it's also like um, there was also the battle on my end of trying to make the demo has a few like one. I think one uh, from Claire is basically just hints that like, hey, I've left a bunch of secret weapons in this area, just like as an easy thing to the player. Like, hey, you should be stopping to explore, but to try and keep as many like helping the player in some sort of way, either this character has encountered this thing earlier and like, this is how they got around it or that sort of thing. Um, 
And there's also, it's been cool to find other opportunities to tell a story. Like, um, at the beginning of this, I think I mentioned that, like, one of the things I have to do now is just, like, write out the bestiary. So every time you come across, but minor thing is the bestiary is by the marine biologist who's on the ship. As the game goes on, the enemies get less aquatic and more uh, messed up and not of sea life. And so if you decided for some reason to go into the menu and read about them, his commentary gets weirder and weirder until he can't understand what he's seeing anymore. Like doing lots of little things to like stick story for in places where the people want, like if you are, if you're in a story and you want to see like all these little details, it's there. But if you just mainline through it, you'll still have a good experience in the end. I think when we were, we were designing it, um, we use this game as inspiration, but I'm putting that with a huge caveat because you don't want to compare yourself to this game in any kind of way. Spec Ops is a good example of <laughs> the Descent into Madness storyline. If you just mainline it and don't pay attention that much, you'll get what happens. But one of the beauties of that game is you go through a second time, there are so many things that you did not catch hinting at all of the things that were going to happen that like really add to it, at least for someone like me. Good. <laughs> right standpoint yeah totally so that was everything i had for you we're kind of <laughs> we almost pretty much hit the time exactly so i mean oh, whoa. Yeah. any quick yeah, thing you nailed it ross you had just enough questions <laughs> to, 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 to to sneak them in there so yeah i guess with the last few minutes guys do, do the uh do all the pumping of you know the game when, when people can play the demo where they can get the demo when they can talk to you guys when if the game's coming out if you know that yet, um, where it's coming out on, <laughs> all that stuff. All the let's sell you, let's sell some depths of sanity. Let's go. Or is yours? Oh, oh Ben, you 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 have the marketing speech down pat. I'll jump in as necessary. Right on. All right. So uh, we we do have the Steam Festival coming up on the 16th, and when the 16th does hit, um, the demo uh, that a, a version of the demo similar to the one that we had at PAX, but. With um with some slight improvements, quality like, of life improvements. Yep, uh, will be available on Steam um for that six day span. Um, it will only be available on Steam for that six day span. So definitely stop by and grab it once the sixteenth hits. Um, we're doing a live stream of that week as well. Um, the details we need to figure. Yeah, definitely out. check our. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, our, our check our. Steam we don't have page the details because... yet. So we're going to, uh, they'll be posted on the Steam page, but also a great way to find that stuff out is to actually follow us on social media. Um, we'll definitely tweet it out on our uh, Twitter, at bomb underscore shelter. Um, and that's probably one of the best spots to get uh, the, like, the sort of real-time information. Along with, though, this Steam Festival, we're going to be launching a Depths of Sanity Discord, where you'll also probably be able to get any of those announcements as well. Um, if you're super interested, you can jump online to our website and join a mailing list. We don't really bother you all that much, but we'll give you no <laughs> noise like this. Um, when stuff like this happens, you can get some of the details. If we're going to be doing festivals, uh, you know, in the future, willing, if they, uh, they do start up again or digital festivals. There's a as future where festivals are still a thing. Um, but yeah, the game is coming out, um, I think we're, we're later in the for, year. We're aim, yeah. shooting for October. We're aiming, we're aiming for fall. Um, um, originally, we were aiming for summer, but coronavirus kind of the kibosh on that. <laughs> um, and uh, it's kinda, yeah, launching got stretched out. on 
Steam and PC uh, will likely be first. We're going to do our best to get the Xbox and Switch versions out at the same time. Um, and PS4, um, hopefully soon after that. But that's the sort of order that you'll see them. But it will be available across all four platforms. Um, so definitely uh, pick your poison there. Um, I think the game is particularly cool on switch and we've gotten a lot of people say like oh this is a switch game this feels like it'd be a great <laughs> switch game and i definitely definitely agree there um we sort of rushed a build out uh four packs because we wanted to see it playing on switch and it was really cool to see that um operating like that but uh so it's coming out for everything by the end of the year, um, check us out at the Steam Festival while you're over at our page trying to figure out when exactly we'll be doing the live stream and the Q&A. Um, add us to your wish list. Even if you're going to buy it on Switch, it helps us It helps us out to have Steam know that people are interested. Um, and yeah, I think that's I think that's the long version of what could have probably been a shorter pitch. Oh, you're good. Check out Depths of Sanity on Steam. We really would appreciate it. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Yeah, that wish list button. Yeah, wish list, unwish list it, and re wish list it again, right? Yeah. Let, them, let them know you care. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I love your stuff, um, and I'm constantly... If you follow GameZo at all, if you're here on the podcast and you follow GameZo and you follow me on Twitter, I'm always retweeting and liking their stuff. So I'm like a, a slower secondary source. <laughs> yeah, We I'll, definitely appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, we appreciate it a lot, for real. No problem. I'll come collect my PR fee later and we can... <laughs> m- m- maybe in a Steam key for a review down the line, That's that would seem like reasonable payment. Absolutely. Um, so. You guys are all bought and paid for. That's the... That's exactly. The, right? <laughs> that's, that's all it is, man. We do this because we're paid. Um, Got to disclose those sponsors. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. So we really appreciate the time, guys. Um, you know, I know in, in a busy time and on a Sunday, nonetheless, uh, everybody's got a hundred things going on. I hear my kids running in the yard. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I get it. And uh, yeah, it, we appreciate the time. If you guys ever want to come back on, you know, around launch and chat yeah, more. Yeah, we're, we're happy to have people. Um, Ross and I were joking beforehand. It's better than covering the same five esports stories for me to oh, actually God. talk to people making <laughs> cool stuff. No, it's not that. It's the remakes that kill me every time. Yeah. Oh, my. Like every, it's like St. Joe 3 started. the remake. Yeah. Like, oh, everything just is allowed to have a remake now? Like, come on, guys. When's the Depths of Sanity remake coming out? When's, I was just about to announce it for <laughs> uh, for PS5 and... PS5 Enhanced Edition, or yeah. whatever. Awesome, yeah. So, cool. We'll let you guys get back to it. Ross, do you want to stay on and do, like, a, a closing thing? We have to, like, shout out sponsors and do the, like, like five-star oh, crap yeah. and all that. So, oh, yeah. we, we can do that. Yeah, thank you guys very much for having us. Yeah, no, thank no, you guys. Great. We, appreciate it, so. we love hearing from devs because they're, like I said, a lot more interesting than Kings of Xamarin Remake. Yeah, so. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, good luck, thank guys, you. with development. Right. You know, I'm sure it's it, like I've played it. It's great so far. Can't wait to see more. So oh, we'll yeah. keep you guys in the loop. You'll definitely be getting a review copy when it's ready. Perfect. Yep. I'd rather buy that. Are you kidding me? Oh, I'll buy I'll buy a copy too. I do that to all the all I the games. I like I buy one and then I gift it to somebody. So. Awesome. Got you guys. Right awesome. On. Thanks. Talk guys. to you guys soon. Yeah. Be Bye. good. Bloop. Um, we'll we'll do like a pause. Leave this group. We're still recording. We're still recording. Ba da 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 da. You're showing up like three times on my screen for some reason. That's oh like, yeah. Look at right, that. Right. Look at that. So that it's always good. I always love. I love getting the perspective. Mm-hmm. I like asking some of the same questions that I ask other devs just to see how different people 
look at it. So like, for yeah. instance, one, one thing I would highlight is when we talked to Leaf um, and we talked about the um, kind of the value of going to the different festivals, the packs and the, you know, the indie game festivals locally and stuff like that. It was more, you know, for them, he said it was really about player feedback and, and the guys from bomb shelter said the same thing, but they also said that, you know, they, they were seeing a lot of traffic from it. Um, and I think, I think that just changes from game to game. You know, I, th- I think that their game is very suitable for a walk by peek at yeah. it, pop in and play it. Um, and I think sometimes the strategy game can be harder, but it's, I'm going to ask that question like every time. And then mm-hmm. in a year I'll have like a marketing company's dream of responses of like how to get indie devs to your festival. Ah, there you go. See, there's always, there's always an ulterior motive. There's an angle here, man. But yeah, really good guys. Um, it's cool that they're local too. I I like seeing, seeing kind of local, local stuff. The thing that was different was Leith was talking about getting like publishers and stuff like, okay, well, what do you need? Like, and they didn't, they didn't talk about that at all. So yeah, yeah, that, that is different. And I think it also, it depends kind of where you're at in how you want to go about launching the game. Right. So these guys, I think you see the numbers, right. They have, um, bomb shelter has four people at minimum working on the project, including Bennett, who's pretty much full time, you know, and up to eight people touching it, depending on who's helping with stuff. And, and the, you know, the Cloudfire Studio was two people. So I, th- I think, it, you know, a lot of that probably comes into play in wh- what you're looking for. Um, I've heard other similar indie devs say things like, hey, we, you know, it's about industry contacts are very important in getting publishers and, and that type of stuff. And, um, you know, there's other folks I've talked to that they had a publisher walking into a, a PAX or an indie showcase. So um, interesting, interesting uh, stuff. But yeah, I thought, it, I think the most interesting thing for me was probably that kind of the discussion about how the story and the art for an underwater game is very difficult. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like just doing the art for underwater is like Bennett said, it's, it's like just, it's blue and there's sand. Yeah, Cause and it's like one level in a game. Like you play Donkey Kong, you got the, you got the water level. You play Mario, you got the underwater level. Like this game, it's just all underwater level. Exactly. And then like Nick was saying with the, the story um, about really, exploring that horror element is is going to allow them both in an art and story direction to kind of come outside of the standard you know yeah. oh we're underwater we're fighting eels and and stuff and then you get you get cooler cooler stuff you can do so cool stuff man cool stuff so the demo on their website was the pax demo that you okay. played makes sense yeah. so so the the um the submarine still did the 180 flip uh maybe not they might have fixed it but that that was a big that was a big thing they were talking to me about because I was, I was starting to get comfortable. And what I would do is I would change direction and hit backdash to kind of go forward fast and then flip back and coast. And I was like, you know, that's super precise. And they were like, yeah, we're already forcing mm-hmm. the thing to arc to move yeah. because it, it's, it's just too, too precise. But um, yeah, it was, that was definitely an interesting perspective too. You know, I've talked to developers, I'm um, talking to writers and, and art folks is, there's so many different considerations they have to make around the game versus just the ones and zeros and, you know, whether the math works and that type of stuff. So cool stuff. You, do, any big news you wanted to like slam on this week for the, the oh, show? This is still like going into the, yeah, we're still, this podcast. podcast. Oh, I thought you were like just having some, you know, nice, nice conversation with your friend. I was, I was trying to trick you into it and then I was going to keep oh. the audio in the podcast. Crud. Yeah. So Crud. I figured That's it was fine. already, I don't think there's any like big new stuff I mean, no it's just... it sucks the you know the sony thing got canceled everything got pushed back 
a week. Um, you know, there's there's some real stuff it's happening in the world. It got canceled. Okay, yeah. Dan. Um, there, there, there's okay, a few. Don't be one of those dudes I see in the the Twitter comments. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. Do I do I needed to know about my PS5 this week? I need. I needed to know. I. You know what? Like I said, there's more important stuff happening in the world right now, and um, I'm cool. I'm cool with whoever wants to move stuff back. We're still going to get systems. We're still going to get games. You know. I also I wanted to mention on the podcast if you listen to last week's and Ross brought up the um, you know why companies can't be transparent with us. Look at the Twitter comments. And so Ross yeah. has started every day sending me the the Twitter thread of the day where he yeah. takes something a gaming company said and then he makes me read the uh, the Twitter comments. So that can be a segment moving forward. I was gonna send it to you, but do you remember the 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 Patriots wide receiver Rashe Caldwell? Yes, the guy who always had like the super wide eyes. Mm-hmm. Like you, you saw he got shot and killed. I did. Yes. Okay. So on like the main Adam Schefter tweet or whatever, like somewhere down in the comments, like someone was like. Do they know who killed them? And then someone was like, well, we know it was a black guy because they didn't say anything about it. Oh, jeez, man. I'm just like, I'm like, really? The internet's such a dumpster fire. <laughs> These are the people you want to be transparent. Okay, with. look, I'm going, I, after a week of education, I'm retracting the entire 30 minute <laughs> rant I made la- on last week's podcast. I don't want companies to be transparent. I want them to just go the other direction. I just want them to come out on like a Tuesday in October and be like, the PS five's on sale at 700 bucks and just like walk away. That's it. It's in stores. Go get it. I don't yeah. want any more game announcements. Just the day it comes out. I want my, <laughs> just to know about it because people are impossible. Cool. Well, that was, that was a good podcast. It'll be a, uh, a quick that was good. I a, like quick, a quick one. A quick one. Yeah, I, I like them. I like, um, but I also like digging at questions. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I, I like if someone wants to go down a rabbit hole about something, like, I'm not going to skip that that opportunity. So, all good. Cool. All right. Well, hey, everybody, you know what to do. Go uh, like, subscribe, five-star, bell, do the nice things, write the review. I didn't say it at the top of the hour, so I'm probably fired. Paul's going to slap me or something. Um I, I always try to make I like to make one jab at Paul per podcast because I like Paul and yeah. I, I just I don't know it's fun and um, he listens to all of them so at some point I just imagine Paul sitting somewhere where he lives which isn't near me so he can't no retaliation from Paul and he's just listening to the podcast having a good time thinking about the fat stacks of money he's getting from our sweet podcast oh that's what I was gonna say <laughs> to the to the devs I was gonna say yeah the, the the steam thing or whatever like since they're not actively with them while they're playing it they can just like go and make some really shitty comments and just like not have to look them in the eye and be like man your game fucking sucks that's true it's true though it's true um and now i have to put a disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast that the language might not be for all listeners um so <laughs> oh i figured you just beat that out at this point man like i'm kind of like in after show mode i yeah this is like this is low-key after show I, gonna, I felt like this was the after show um, i didn't know we were doing another podcast afterwards we're gonna have to do a second podcast about news at some point i don't have time to do it today we might have to do it tomorrow what, what's the news there was actually a fair amount of news last week um i don't i can't go check because the games of websites down because we're moving hosting what a professional website oh no it's up for me oh is it is it it's finally up news am okay so let, let me just look at like the top okay amnesia developers next game is definitely not a horror okay i don't care kingdoms of amalar don't care astrology no we ha- you have to talk for 40 minutes about kingdoms don't of amalar care. i literally don't care like i want to like i'd rather talk about how mad rhode island should be that's that, really i know i um, know i don't care about cloud nine i don't care about <laughs> the new xbox store design who cares ea games added to steam okay great 
No one cares because no, that's game. the that's the best news ever. Because Origin's such dog shit. Like, oh, you say that, but how do you think these games launch, Dan? They probably how do you launch, think these games? They launched great. Let's, let's let's say you get let's say you get Madden nineteen or Madden twenty, right? How, and you get it on Steam. How do you think this is going, going to launch when you click that icon? It's going to open up Origin and launch my it's game. It's going to open up Origin and it's going to run it through Origin. I specifically looked because I was gonna I was gonna 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 get Dragon Age, and it was like it was mixed, and I was like, okay, well this game's been out. Like, what do you mean it's mixed? Like, we all know what this game is, right? So I'm going down reading the comments, and I just I expect to see oh it's poorly optimized for Steam or whatever. And it, but no, all the negative comments are like it launches Origin and plays the game through Origin. Why did I buy it here? That's that's awesome. It's bit, like it's Origins like little baby but it's like so EA virus it's like an EA yeah. thing. It is. Like they couldn't just move their games over. They're like, man, this is a really good idea if we, you know, put our games on Steam. But they gotta come back to Origin. Yeah, so they so they can be mad. My wife, the only video game she plays is Sims, and all she does, like every time she launches Sims, is she comes over and she's like, "Is there any way to play this without Origin?" And I'm like, yeah. "No, welcome to the suck. You picked the the one game you play is on the worst launcher that's ever been devised." Period. But. Yeah, we don't. I don't think we have to actually do a second show. I don't know, people. Why don't you tell us in the comments while you're liking, subscribing, and five starring? Yeah, all in the comments. Tell us. Let us know. Do you do you want a, a second podcast um, or not? So I think this one was good. I hope people enjoy these. The feedback on the last one was positive, and that people wanted more of these. So um, you know, let us know if you want more of these. There's tons of indie developers out there that um, they're fighting a bunch of anime hentai puzzle games. In Steam, and oh, they would get into that too. Yeah, yeah I that know. Was I want to talk well, about. when they come back on in October yeah. for the game launch, we can we can start the entire. We can tell them block off two hours. We're starting with the games you're fighting yeah. to be in the top twenty list. Yeah, so let's like the, like the plan is going to be release a soundtrack, but make each individual song something you can buy. So you're just one whole page of just like Depth of Sandy soundtrack track one, like ten cents, whatever, and just like fill that list up. Yeah, yeah, that that's that, that's that's the strat, man. Hey, when I launch my game in twenty years, I'm gonna you're in charge of the the Steam launch, okay? You you plan that out so that the only thing they can buy is my game in some capacity. That's your that's your job. That's your job. I feel like I could probably I kind of this is terrible, and we'll end the podcast on this thought. Um, I'm thinking about just going and programming a quick uh, puzzle game, and just like just literally just throwing it out there for like a dollar fifty just to see. Yeah. What the the degenerates out there are willing to buy, but all right, Ross, do you have any any parting words for the people? No. All right, phase up. <laughs>